What's up, everybody? Jimmy Smith unlocking the cage. On today's podcast, I interview Benil Daryush, ranked third at 155 in the UFC, but doesn't have a dance partner come up. We'll talk about his frustrations and his career moving forward. Also, I talked to John Vandemore about the Varsity Blues investigation and his experiences with the whole affair. Joining me now, Benil Daryush. How you doing, man? Doing great. Doing great. All right. So my first question for you, I was just talking to our listeners about it. We have Justin Gaethje versus Michael Chandler coming up. We have Charles Oliveira versus uh, Dustin Poirier. And we have Islam Makachev versus Dan Hooker. That is everyone in the top six except you. How does it feel to have all these other guys fighting and you're stuck on the sideline, man, despite being at number three? It sucks. Um, it sucks, but... Um... You know, I was actually uh, listening to Justin Gagey. He's like, he was in the same position as me not too long ago. So I get it. Sometimes it happens. It does kind of suck. I'm uh, deep down. I'm like, maybe I'll just get a fight, even if it's somebody outside the top 10. But I'll just get a fight just so I can fight. But um, we'll see. We'll see, man. I'm, uh, I'm getting bored. Let's just put it that way. So my question for you is when you look at it and and that option comes up of like, okay, uh, I'm ranked now. I got to start thinking about keeping my ranking and how do I, I stay relevant. Does that start weighing on you a little more? Like you're the kind of guy who before you were – before you had this, this, this win streak you're on and, and you're the number three guy, before you were on this streak, you would have fought anybody, anywhere, doesn't matter. Now that you're within spitting distance of a title shot – does it become one of those things where you go, look, I got to worry about my ranking. I don't want to fall down. I don't want to uh, lose what I've worked so hard to get and maintain. Is it something you think about more once you're ranked in that top five? Well, let, let's see. I was on this streak. I, uh, I, was, I got into the top 15 and nobody would fight me. So I fought yes. guys outside the top 15. I, I got into the top 10 and then I... And I fought guys behind and, and then like, you know what I mean? So like, yeah. I've always done that. It's not something I'm against. It's, um, it's just one of those things where, uh, now I got to argue like with my manager and my coaches and even my wife, they're all like, why are you doing this? Can you stop doing this? We get to the, and there, everybody's upset with me. So I got to figure it out. Uh, I, I, I really do want to fight December. I really don't want to wait. So uh, I, w- I would rather, I would rather fi- find somebody, and uh, just fight. I don't care what their ranking is, but we'll see what happens. All right. So, have you been offered any of these fights? What have the talks been up to this point? Was it a matter of we're going to find a fight for you? Just hang on. What, what's the communication like at this point? So they um, they spoke to me about Islam, and I said I would do it December because I, uh, you know, I I just had a baby. And I've been trying to kind of get used to the baby, and I'm starting to finally get into the flow of it. And I said December would be perfect. They said, no, he has to be on the October 30 card. So uh, I said, okay, well, I guess that's not going to work out. And then I remember Dan Hooker called me out, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm not against it. Um, not, no problem for me. I mean, I, I believe I tried to fight him before, but he was ranked ahead of me, and he wasn't interested. So it's not a big deal for me. I, I, I would fight Dan Hooker. That would be a good fight. Uh, but ideally, uh, another thing, or I don't know if it's ideal, but another uh, cool one would be if I could be an alternate. But that's not, uh, they, I guess that's not going to happen. I don't know. 
How do they usually make that system work? We've heard of other fighters weighing in. Oh, Michael Chandler, of course, an alternate for this fight or that fight. Um, do they pay you to weigh in? How does being an alternate work, man? Yeah, they do pay you. Um, they pay you a certain amount. Uh, you you have to make championship weight. And uh, I'm trying to think what else, if there's any other requirements. I think that's it. You just have to uh, make championship weight and, and you, you get paid if you don't fight. But if uh, there's a possibility that you end up replacing uh, the challenger's position, I would assume. Um, so is it is it one of those things when you're on the sidelines like this, is it one of those things where you are um, – are, are you – you're an interested observer for all these fights, right? We have Chandler versus Gaethje, Oliveira versus Poirier, Hooker versus Makachev. Of these fights, uh, is there a winner of these particular fights that you're looking at right now as your next step? Like, I'm mm. voting for so-and-so, or I'm hoping I get the winner of X fight. What would that be? If I had to take a guess, it would probably be... Okay, I don't... It... Here's the options that I think that could play out. It could be the loser... Of, of the Charles and uh, Dustin Poirier, or it could be the winner of Dan Hooker and uh, Makachev, or I don't think Chandler's going to win, but if Chandler wins, he's another option too. So I think if, because I think if Justin Gagey wins, he gets a title shot. Okay. So, so- so let, let, let's break that down a little bit. I, I'd like to pick your brain. Of course, I'm talking to Benil Daryush, right now number three in the UFC rankings at 155 pounds, but right now he is odd man out uh, as far as, 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 as fights coming up. When you look at let, let's break down for a second Islam Makachev versus Dan Hooker. You said you wanted to take on Islam Makachev. The timing didn't really work out. How do you think this works out for Dan Hooker, who's, who's you know a guy who uses a lot of movement, who throws a lot of combinations, not a one-shot knockout kind of guy. How do you think his style lines up with Islam Makachev? Uh, to be honest, it's hard to say. I've never really seen him, like, grapple, grapple against a good yeah. grappler. I've never seen him fight a good grappler, but he does seem pretty well-rounded. I think I think what's going to happen is uh, Islam is going to go a very uh, grappling-heavy uh, uh, style of attack on him. I think he's going to look to take him down. And uh, kind of suffocate him. Um, if um, if he could keep the range, if he could threaten with uh, maybe guillotines, he can he can threaten with knees. He could possibly keep the distance and, and make the fight uh, competitive. But it's it's hard, man. He hasn't even had a full camp for this fight, so I would definitely lean uh, towards Islam. So what are your thoughts on that as a competitor, as someone who's obviously studied Dan Hooker or studied Islam Makachev? He took this fight after you know a dominant performance, but he went the distance with Nasad Hakpadas. It isn't the easiest fight in the world. Not getting a full camp, turning right around and taking on a, a, a grappling-centric guy. Uh, what are the risks with that quick of a turnaround, man? In a way, it's, it's kind of a win-win for him, if you think about it. Because if he loses, he was supposed to lose, right? And if he wins, man, he just shoots up the rankings right there. He's he's like top five again. So for him, it's it's difficult to say. You know, I don't think he really has a. It's not a bad thing for him. He's gonna he's in a good spot no matter what. Even if he loses, I don't think he's gonna go down the rankings. So I think he uh, I think it was a good choice on his part. 
Um, are you buying, I don't, I don't say the hype, but a lot of people, when they talk about Islam Makachev, they talk about him like he's the next big thing, he's the next champion, he's the next Khabib. Uh, hasn't had the big name to prove that to us. Has shown some excellent skills, of course. What are your thoughts on that, on this like kind of preordaining him as one of the best ever? You know, I think he's really good. Skill-wise, there's not uh, not taking anything away from what what's frustrating for me is, for example, he beat Drew Dober and Thiago uh, Moises, Thiago Moises, and yeah. became number five. I beat those guys back to back like four years ago, or three years ago, or whatever it was. You know, I think it was three years ago, and I didn't even get into the top fifteen. I had to, I had to beat a yeah. few more guys, and then I finally got into the top fifteen. And uh, so it was that part's a little bit frustrating to watch, but I get it. It's it's the business, so. As far as his potential, uh, we're really going to get to know it when we see him fight in the top five guys. We start seeing him fight me, uh, guys like Gagey, Chandler, uh, Dustin Poirier, and Oliveira. I think, I think against he has a he's got a very good style against strong uh, strikers. For for somebody like uh, let's say Dustin Poirier who leans heavy on on uh, striking, I think he's a bad matchup. But for guys like me, Oliveira, who, who can grapple, that it's much more competitive. So I'm talking to Benil Daryush, right? right uh, n- number three right now in the 105-pound division. Let me pick your brain about the fight you just mentioned. Michael Chandler versus Justin Gaethje. You don't think uh, Chandler is victorious in that matchup? Tell me why, man. Well, uh, he seems too eager to exchange, want to exchange. He... He was uh, he got dropped by um, um, Charles Oliveira, and I yep. think um, Justin hits much harder. And Justin is very good at picking his shots, and and he's really he's great at moving around and 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 being um, he's really hard to find. He's not an easy guy to find, and he's gotten much better at this in his last couple of fights. Especially if you watch his fight with Tony, his his footwork was perfect. So. With that being said, I, I just I think Chandler is gonna come out like uh, guns blazing, look to throw big punches, and as he's throwing big punches, Justin's just gonna find him. He's gonna find that chin. I could be wrong. It's possible that Chandler comes out and and uh, uh, you know tries a heavy heavy wrestling um, tactic, and and that might work for him. Um, it's, but that's the cool thing about MMA. We just don't know what what's going to happen. So I'm I'm excited to see it. I, I want to see um, how they're going to fight, how they're going to approach the fight, what the coaches have game planned. Obviously, Trevor Whitman is a genius, and then you have uh, Henry Hooft on uh, on the other side, also a great great coach. So I mean, it's 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 going to be a cool fight. Now, let's move on to the title fight, a fight you are very interested in. Charles Oliveira versus uh, Dustin Poirier. Charles Oliveira might be, no disrespect here, Benil, the most talented guy at 155. What Charles Oliveira can do, his skill set is absolutely huge, but there have been questions about his heart in the past. Paul Felder turned it on and was able to beat him with an elbow to kind of flip the fight around. When he's pushed harder, finds himself in a compromising position, in the past, it spelled his doom. Dustin Poirier is the blue-collar, hard-working guy. As you said, leans a lot on his striking. Could he... Uh, you know, test the heart of Charles Oliveira, and do you think Charles Oliveira passes that test, man? 
Mm, I'm actually leaning towards Charles. I think he he could pull it off, uh, but uh, Dustin can definitely take him into deep waters. The the reason why Charles looks so um, so talented and and so um, you know different than everybody else is because he has such a heavy uh, attack style. Like he's, it's all about submission, submission, knockout punches, knockout elbows, knockout kicks. Like there's not a whole lot of defense in his game, and and because of that, he looks like a world beater when he's on point. And then when, when all of a sudden things are not going his way because he's not so uh, defensively uh, solid, he, he starts to fall apart and, 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 and he falls fast. As you, as you mentioned uh, with Paul Felder. So when, when, when he's on offensively, he's kicking butt. But as soon as, as soon as, you know, um, things aren't going his way, his attacks aren't connecting his, uh, his sequences aren't falling through and he's getting clipped, things change. And, and you saw it a little bit with the Chandler fight, but obviously I think he showed, a, he showed heart. And, 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 you know, a lot of people talk about, oh, he doesn't have the heart. Sometimes I wonder if it's not an issue of heart. It's more of an issue of just the style. He's always been so heavy, um, heavy on attack that he just doesn't really know defensively what to do. Well, Benil, not only do I hope you fight and fight very soon, I hope you get the... The guy you want, and I hope it's the one that leads to the title shot. Benil, I've been watching you for years, man, and you've really worked hard to get where you are. And I want you to know, as a fight fan, I appreciate you, man. I can't wait for your next fight, bud. Thanks. So with that being said, because I'm, I'm confused myself, who would be the guy that I got to beat to get a title shot? So just, right. just ask it. Just he, ask it for a friend. All right, cool, cool, cool. <laughs> let, let, let's talk about that. The guy you would have to beat for a title shot, let's say – um, of the guys you're talking about, I think you're most likely to get, if Islam Makachev beats Dan Hooker, I think you're next for Islam Makachev, and I think the winner of that fight gets a title shot. That is my I prediction, think- and I believe it. Makes sense. All right, right. cool. All right, if cool. you need some management, cool. give me a call, man. You know my number. All right, anyway, <laughs> Benil Daryush, ladies and gentlemen. Busted Open is your daily home for all things pro wrestling. Join Dave LaGreca, WWE Hall of Famers, Bully Ray and Mark Henry, and hardcore wrestling legend Tommy Dreamer. Dave LaGreca here. From WWE to AEW, Impact, New Japan, Ring of Honor, and more, we talk it all. Whether you grew up watching Ric Flair or Stone Cold Steve Austin, Busted Open is your place for pro wrestling. Busted Open, Mondays through Saturdays at 9 a.m. East on Fight Nation, Sirius XM Channel 156. I now have a very special guest. I cannot wait to talk to you because I, I read your book. I thought it was absolutely outstanding. John Vandemore, his book, Rigged Justice, about the college admissions scandal. You were uh, the Stanford University sailing coach who was kind of caught up in this investigation. Varsity Blues is what it was codenamed. Um, first off, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. My first question for you is take us back a little bit. Uh, one of the things I found fascinating about the book is you reveal that coaches of these programs basically have to recruit their own money. You are supposed to be a booster, not just a coach. What I want to ask is about that that recruiting and basically soliciting money as a booster. How difficult was that with no background in that kind of thing, finance or administration? How was it? It was really difficult because, as you said earlier, I have no background in law or how it all works. Um, So there was no training at all where there was going to be a gray area or that I could be in trouble at all for it. So obviously my job was recruiting and that's what I knew really well. The fundraising part was really new to me and something I had no training or experience in. 
Um, so it was really tough in a way to know that there was a problem with that they could collide in the same place. All right, so when this all broke, a guy named Rick Singer was really behind it. He was the one that was essentially taking athletes and trying to get them into various universities by getting them involved in sports they had no background in or very little background in, and then basically bribing his way in. Now, when this all came about, you wrote in your book that one of the, uh, I guess, recruits, one of the candidates that he brought you, their parents want to donate a million dollars to your sailing club. And, hey, great. And you pass it up the chain and no one had any red flags. You pass it above. You did what you needed to do. And there were no red flags about that. Talk about it, a little bit about that process for me. Yeah. When when he said that there is a recruit in the family's affluent and they could donate a million dollars if they get in. I was like, I, I know nothing about that. So I went to my athletic director and she said, hey, I know nothing about that. I'll ask as well. So she went to someone else and came back with, yes, you know, there's something like that could happen, but a million dollars isn't enough. (laughs) And my jaw just hit the floor. Right. I picked myself up and was like, oh, my gosh, like I have no idea what's going on here. So I went back to Rick Singer and said, hey, look, you know, I there's nothing here. I can't support it. Um, and I don't have a spot because I didn't really need this athlete on the team. I had already gone down the road of my recruiting class. And he said, well, you know, keep working on it. My athletic director emails me back and says, you know, hey, there's no spot for it, but we're going to put her on a development watch list. And I had no idea. I'd never heard of a development watch list before. Um, But they had put her there in email on this development watch list. And I kind of assumed that was it. Um, You know, I have no nothing else to deal with her. And I didn't hear anything for months until right before the next school year was about to start. And Rick Singer calls me up and says, hey, you know, uh, we want to donate 500000 because Molly got into school and she's choosing Stanford. I was like, wow, <laughs> I had no idea she even got into school. And now you want to donate $500,000 for me doing nothing. Um, but that's what they wanted to do. I went again to my athletic director and said, here's the situation. He wants to donate it through his foundation or now infamous foundation. And um, they said, great, no problem. And I started to describe to my athletic director, Bernard Muir, who, as he was congratulating me on the the money, um, who Rick Singer was. And he said, oh, yeah, we know Rick and kind of cut me off and stopped me from there. Uh, so speaking to John Vandemore, author of Rig Justice, about his experience with the Varsity Blues investigation, uh, before we get into when this all kind of came down and the IRS and FBI show up at your house, um, when you look back on it now, you write about how Rick Singer was doggedly persistent, annoyingly persistent, always talking about this recruit, that recruit. Looking back on it now, are there things where you think, I should have known something about this guy or something about the way these funds were donated, even though, once again, not your job to catch those things. Looking back on it, were there there red flags in your mind now as you talk about it? Yeah, certainly. Um, It's been hard, and writing this book was part of that process of figuring those moments out. Like, what was the moment that I should have just said, no, this doesn't seem right, or I need to ask more? Um, certainly there was a few that I think I could look back to uh, knowing what I know now. I mean, that's kind of a famous saying, right? Knowing what I know now, I should have um, kind of said no or, or asked more questions from it. Um, but at the time, I thought that this is what Stanford wanted me to do. And, and this was I was doing my job really well. So I was pretty naive and kind of blinded into this. 
Uh, so I got your, your book opens up with the IRS and the FBI showing up at your house, and it's almost Kafka esque, right? If you read any books by Kafka, it's you're you're caught in this machine that you believed is designed to separate the guilty from the innocent, and you realize that it really isn't designed to do that. It's kind of a net to catch everybody. Um, at first, when you let him in and you're you're trying to be cooperative and trying to help, and then you realize you're a target of the investigation, describe that process a bit. Where did you go from, I think I might be a witness to, wait a second, I'm a target of this investigation. What did that mean? Yeah, it it was it was unreal. I mean, I left the the interview with the IRS and FBI in my living room, essentially, or my dining room, and not knowing what was going on. I mean, they basically the IRS agent who had just been yelling at me a few seconds before turned to me and like, you seem like a good guy and you have a great family. And I think this will all be okay. And I was like, well, am I being charged with anything? Like I'm in trouble. I don't understand. It's like, well, we don't know, but you should get a lawyer. And I said, well, I don't have any money, so I don't have a lawyer. And they said, well, okay, we'll, we'll have you apply for uh, a court appointed lawyer. So I filled out all this paperwork. It actually took weeks to do that. Um, got a court appointed lawyer and he calls me up and says, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm so-and-so meeting you for the first time over the phone. I wanted to go and talk to the prosecutor. What do you think this is all about? And my feeling from other people I talked to that this, they wanted me to witness against Rick Singer. I had no idea that I was, I was it. And he went off and talked to the prosecutor. And about two hours later, he called me and he's like, you need to sit down. Um, this is, this is not good. And I said, well, what's going on? So they want to charge you with bribery. Um, and that actually you're not a witness. Rick Singer is a witness against you. And I just, I just sunk. I mean, I was on the ground. Um, if I could have cried right then I would have, I mean, it was just an unbelievable turn of events. Um, I never would have thought that I would get myself into. How different is it as a, uh, I won't say, you know, regular person? Um, most of the targets of this investigation were either celebrities or officials high up at schools like USC and Stanford that have the resources and have the funds and have the ability to pay lawyers to fight their battles for them. As a regular Joe, right, who's caught up in this kind of thing, how different is the experience for you than what you saw around you with these people who are surrounded by reporters, they're super famous, they have the money to fight this, and you're caught up in it and you're not one of those people how surreal was that? Oh, it was, I mean, just the media alone was unreal because I'm leaving on March 12th when I pled and having cameras in my face, you know, guys walking backwards at Mach 5 with a lens in my face and people screaming out questions and insults and everything else. I had no experience with that, which I'm assuming the, you know, the famous people had a lot more experience about that um, than I did. MMA, we get it every day. Every day, John. That's, that's, that is my yeah. life. But go ahead. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. Right. You know, and to, to read an article that, you know, poor Lori Loughlin's got to leave her, you know, $30 million mansion to go down to a $9 million mansion. And I've got my 16-year-old Volvo that I'm hoping to pay for gas. You know, it's, yeah. it's like a different world. Um, and it's I felt trapped. You know, honestly, you feel trapped. I don't have the wherewithal to do it. It's one of the big reasons why I pled guilty is I don't have millions of dollars for my defense. And you needed to pay that. I mean, this is this is hard legal theory. This is not off the shelf.
Uh, go into that a little bit. One of the things, of course, talking to John Vandemore, author of Rig Justice, you've done some research about how often people plea in federal cases. And it's like 90% of the time because they threatened you with, I think, three charges at 20 years apiece. Or you can plea and get a two-year suspended sentence. A, an innocent person will plea. If you gave me that right now, 60 years or you know, two years, you might serve one. I'm going to plea to whatever the hell you tell me. I mean, even whether I've done it or not, talk a little bit about that thought process and the way it's 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 basically waited for you to plea, even though you didn't do anything. Yeah, because winning in the in the case, fighting it and winning is so painful. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah. It's the, the hardest thing to do is to, to be successful after you win because you're paying millions of dollars for legal fees. You're still waiting for trial, which is going to be a year away. Um, and that's winning and you don't get that money back. And so the system is set up that it's really hard to defend yourself. I mean, any normal Joe that doesn't have those that funds and can support themselves for a year of no work has no chance. You know, you're stuck. Oh, so what has it been like? um, Your perceptions. And I got to say, I know I'm from Long Beach, California. I do get that. Um, so I would never let a cop into my house ever under any circumstance. I did have an attorney with me. Uh, how has this changed your view going through this, through this whole process of the legal system itself as, as a citizen? It's, it's really changed. I was one of those guys that if someone pled guilty, then they're guilty, right? That was, that was it. And, you know, I saw it as black and white and going through this process, I see a totally different side, you know, it's gray all over the place. And from plea agreements to, um, you know, to charges and everything else, it's all over the place. And it's, it really makes you kind of jaded of is the, you know, in this case in particular, is the prosecution out for justice or are they out to get big names and trying to put themselves and move themselves up the ladder? And it, you know, so to get justice, Rick Singer and a few of his ringleaders would have ended this all together. Instead, they just kept it going and kept it going and kept it going. Um, the, you know, the Yale soccer coach was pulled, did a coach a whole season, um, knowing that he was charged in this before they actually pulled him out and had him, had him resign. I mean, it's just it's crazy. Where's justice in that? Uh, what are your thoughts about another institution? Um, to a lot of people, this confirmed what we all felt about education, right? The trust fund kid that can give a building to a university is going to get in over a hardworking kid who doesn't have money. We all kind of assumed that. Um, you working at Stanford in the time you did and being in education as long as you were, how did it change your opinion about our educational system and how it's run? You know, I, I still debate about that because yeah. is as true as that is, I also saw another side of it where a school like Stanford has an incredible financial aid and financial aid has been really expanded. Like most of the kids on my team, um, because we don't have scholarships, were in financial aid and came from not great neighborhoods um, and f- from hardship from that. And you see a lot of kids in athletics that, that that's the case, but you have to be able to fundraise for all that financial aid. You know, there's the other side of it back and forth. And so the school needs those really strong financial families to kind of be in control. Certainly my experience with having, you know, an athletic director tell me that, yeah, money's involved, but a million dollars isn't enough. Um, certainly makes you pretty jaded of how all the admissions and, and the financial reason goes. 
If you would have, and your book is called uh, Rig Justice, I suggest everybody check it out. Uh, I read it over the last couple of days. It's a really good uh, work, not only about the justice system, but the educational system and your experiences as well. What would you want someone who reads Rig Justice to come out and understand about your struggle and what you went through? You know, I I put a lot of faith and a lot of um, a lot of belief in Stanford in my in my corporation that was in charge of me essentially and feeling that they were going to protect me and wouldn't let something like this happen to me and it just wasn't the case and i think for everybody you know believe in the people that you work for absolutely but have some healthy skepticism at the same time you know give yourself some perspective um look at things that are too good to be true because they're too good to be true and i was too naive to to get myself out of this for that so having that kind of balance of being able to have faith in the people that are employing you and your boss, but also know enough to really protect yourself and question the decisions that are being made around you. John Vandermore, ladies and gentlemen, author of Rigged Justice. It is out now. It is an outstanding book. Check it out if you can about the Varsity Blues scandal and his role and experiences in it. Thank you so much for joining us, John. Thank you so much for having me. Unlocking the Cage with Jimmy Smith is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network. The executive producer is Michael Russo. The associate producer is Kelly Murphy. Sound design by Nuri Balin. Andy King is director of sports podcasting for SiriusXM. Special thanks to SiriusXM's senior vice president of sports programming and podcasting, Steve Cohen. And SiriusXM Fight Nation program director, Marissa Rivas. Serious XM Podcasts.